Good morning. You might be able to tell that I'm fighting my voice, so if it breaks during the, the sermon, we'll just have a time of prayer. But until that time, if you would, please open your Bibles and join me in two places this morning. John chapter 16, as well as Romans chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one into your lap. And so uh, please raise your hand and Pastor Andy will bring them to you uh, shortly. Uh, There are a few things taking place in the message this morning. We are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of John. We have moved from the three years of Jesus' ministry to the three hours or so of the upper room discourse. And over this time, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit across chapters 13 through 17 a handful of times. And so what I'm doing is the title of this message this morning is, Who is the Holy Spirit? Part 4. And I'm doing that so that you can go back online and listen to the parts together and kind of synthesize or systematize what Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse regarding the Holy Spirit. Last time together, we're in John 16, verses 4, down to verse 15. And we looked at the role of the Holy Spirit in the individual Christian and the church. This morning, our attention is confined to verses 8 through 11, where Jesus is going to speak of the role of the Holy Spirit in the world. So with that, I'm going to begin in the middle of verse 4 of John chapter 16. Read down to verse 11, pray, and we'll jump right into the message. Beginning in John 16, the middle of verse 4. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, this morning we pray that you would give us understanding according to your word, that we would rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure, the great treasure of your gospel, that you sent your son to live, die, and rise in our place for our sins that by grace through faith we could be made children of God, restored to you, rescued from your wrath, and more. Uh, You have been clear, Lord, across this gospel of John, that the darkness hates the light and does not come to the light, lest its deeds be exposed. And that was all of us, Lord, and it may be some of us still. And so we ask your spirit to accomplish your saving and sanctifying purposes in this place this morning as your word is preached. 
Pray that you would help my voice, Lord, and you would help our hearts and our ears to receive and believe all that you would say. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. How does the world know God? Is the world's knowledge of God only through Christians? Are, in other words, are, are we, those who believe, his only witness in this world? Does the advance of the gospel, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the church, does that dis- depend exclusively upon Christians? Are we failures in God's eyes if our witness is weak? Is the ministry of the Holy Spirit only for Christians, or does the Holy Spirit work upon non-Christians in a unique way? Well, in our text this morning, questions like these and more are addressed by Jesus Because Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit not primarily in Christians and not primarily through the church. Jesus describes in these verses 8 through 11 the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline this morning. Verse 8 is a banner verse, a banner statement that Jesus makes. And verses 9 through 11 are a drop-down menu where he explains what he said in verse 8. And so if you're taking notes, the first, there's the, the main point of this passage is the Holy Spirit convicts the world. So rely on him for your witness. But as we read, there's three sub-points as we read in this text. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, that's verse 9, of righteousness, that's verse 10, and of judgment, verse 11. We will spend the bulk of our time in verse 8, unpacking what Jesus says there, and with a, short, with a quicker clip, work, work through verses 9 through 11. So if you would, look with me at verse 8. Here's the overarching point. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, so rely on him for your witness. Jesus says in verse 8, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's his banner statement. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now let's remember the context. Jesus, in chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and now 16, has not only announced his departure but also that the disciples are going to face forthcoming persecution from the world in general and the Jews in particular. And Jesus tells them that people are going to think they are worshiping God and offering religious service by killing the disciples. So their hearts are troubled. Sorrow has filled their hearts. And yet... In all this, Jesus has commissioned the apostles 
and all disciples to go and be his witnesses in the world. And this creates a tension in my mind, and I think it should create a tension in yours as well, how Jesus says persecution is going to come, they're going to cast them out of synagogues, they're going to murder some of them, and so Jesus says, they're going to do that to you, so go. Go be my witnesses, go continue my ministry in the world, preach the gospel, speak of my perfect life, my sinless death, my resurrection for your justification, my ascension into heaven, and they're going to kill you. This, well, this is Matthew 10, 16. It's, it's sending sheep among wolves. So that's why I asked this at the beginning. Does our witness in this world depend solely upon us? We are commissioned to go. How does the church, the apostles, the disciples, the universal church, how are we able to obey Jesus' word and go into this world that expresses hostility to the gospel message. And the answer in the text this morning is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. What we saw last week is not only will the Holy Spirit empower us and preserve us, and the Holy Spirit will bear witness through us. So, so think of it this way. This is, this is remarkable. Jesus continues the earthly ministry we read of in the Gospels through the church. The same ministry we read of there is a ministry he continues now by the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. So let that sink in. It is never our witness of the Gospel on our own. It is not your ingenuity to argue apologetics. It is not your brilliance or tact or humor or whatever skill that we might employ as people. It is not us ultimately that's the witness. It's Christ's witness through us by his spirit. But more than that, our passage goes even further. Our passage at hand reveals that the spirit will bear witness or convict the world kind of like a forward air war military campaign before we even get there. So what makes this text interesting this morning is most of what we read in the Bible is is certainly addressed to us as Christians, but verses 8 through 11 almost make us bystanders. On the one hand, they're going to explain why you're saved and how you got saved and how Jesus will save other people by his Spirit, But it's almost like we're bystanders where Jesus is explaining how the Holy Spirit works outside the church body. And so the question is, how? And I want to summarize three overlapping. So these are three sub-points to this first point. Three sub-points. There are three ways the Bible describes the Holy Spirit's work in the world to convict. And here they are. The Holy Spirit works in the world through, number one, creation, number two, conscience, and number three, Christians. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. He works in the world through creation, conscience, and Christians. And this is going to explain and unpack what Jesus means when he says when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, 
And he does that in the realms of creation, conscience, and Christians. So let's think about creation. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim his craftsmanship. Do you hear in that poetry how the Bible describes the function of creation in the world? It declares and it proclaims. There's a reason why we as human beings love beauty and the beauty of creation. There's a reason why many of us live here in this town. And even as unbelievers, I remember my mom telling me that she was a very strong anti-Christian until Jesus saved her when she was around 41 or 42. But she said that when, even when she was in high school, when she went through the Wawona Tunnel to get into Yosemite, and you break through and you see the panorama of, the whole, of all of Yosemite Valley, that she remembers telling herself that she didn't believe in God, but if there was a God, this view right here shows me that he exists. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his craftsmanship. Or consider Romans 1. I had you turn there. Please look with me at verses 18 through 20. Now what's going to make this passage unique is that this is a passage that describes how what, what you and I did uh, prior to being saved and how the world, the unbelieving world, interacts with seeing creation. So Roman 1, 8, Romans 1 verse 18, thinking about how the Holy Spirit convicts the world through creation, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Note this. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is a beach ball of truth and they're standing in the ocean trying to hold it under. But it's going to pop up. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. It's a parallel passage to Psalm 19, and here we see that all of creation testifies and proclaims. In fact, meditating on or considering thinking about the reality of, cre of creation reveals to the human heart the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power and divine nature. It's clearly perceived ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Genesis chapter 1, and all people are without excuse. All people are without excuse. And what was unique about Romans 1.18 is 
God's attributes are clearly perceived, and Romans 18, 1.18 told us that that perception is suppressed. It's denied. It's rejected. So to frame these passages in a different way, this idea of the Holy Spirit, because the connection is it's not just a human being looking at a mountain or a tree and on their own accord seeing God's divine attributes, but it's the Spirit of God himself who not only operated in creation, but it's the Spirit of God who testifies of those realities in the human heart, which we'll see in the coming verses. But this idea of the Holy Spirit ministering or revealing the glory of God in creation, to frame this in a different way, all sciences, in our, in our modern context, all sciences, what they are truly, are a study of God's work in and ordering of creation and a proof of his existence. There is no excuse in denying God's existence as evidenced in all creation. I want you to think about that. The sciences seek to investigate, uncover, and understand how the world works in multifaceted capacities. And what the sciences are designed to do, because they're invented by God, is to declare his handiwork and craftsmanship. It reveals him. But what the sciences do in our world is they seek an inquiry of how the world works and is ordered and why it exists, denying God's existence. There is no true understanding of science apart from God himself. Creation witnesses to all people that something greater than ourselves exists gives us a sense of God's eternal power and divine nature. Second, the conscience. What is the conscience? The conscience is the inward moral compass implanted in each human being. Every human being has a conscience. Turn over to Romans chapter 2, please. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is making an argument. He's referring to those who are unaware of and outside of the Mosaic covenant community, non-Jews. In Romans 2.15, he says something remarkable. Romans 2.15, they, meaning Gentiles, non-Jews, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. What is going on here? So he's talking about Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic law. They don't have the Bible. And yet Paul says in Romans 2.15, they have the work of the law written on their hearts. And God's law, whatever that means, we'll explain that, is on their heart and their inner lawyer, their conscience. So their will and their desires and their conscience can either be in harmony or disharmony and either accuse or excuse them. 
In other words, the law written on the hearts is the basic moral reality of who God is that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden when he made them as his image bearers and has been in the heart of every human ever since. And the law written on their hearts, think of the basic moral principles God has woven into the fabric of society or of, of, of existence rather, such as the Ten Commandments or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is not to say that an unbeliever, or excuse me, a, a Gentile, an unbeliever, um, can suddenly just recite Exodus 20 and tell you what the Ten Commandments are. It doesn't mean that, but it means that you know you shouldn't steal, and you shouldn't murder, and you shouldn't covet your neighbor's stuff. It means that you shouldn't make idols, and you should have no other gods before God himself, and that you should worship the God alone, and, and so on. It means that kids should respect their parents, and more. That is written into the human person. Think about this. The core reality is written on the heart that every human being is to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. And this is the basic reality that every human across all times, peoples, and places, every human being has a shared sense of right and wrong. We are moral creatures. There is nothing that is not moral in human existence because you can ask the question, why? And why seeks an explanation or a justification for something? Why is the speed limit 55? There is a moral reasoning attached to that. And so all human beings are moral in nature. But sin twists and perverts leading to a seared conscience. And so what we see then is the Holy Spirit works in the moral nature of the human conscience. And that's an inner lawyer that the Holy Spirit can use to shine the light of God's word on, as we'll see in the, what it means for the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The, Lord, or the Holy Spirit uses conviction in creation and conscience to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We want you to know the Holy Spirit uses conscience. So when you go to share the gospel with somebody, you can trust that the Holy Spirit has already been working on their conscience. They know right and wrong. And what that means then is when we are wrong, and we recognize that by God's grace, guilt and shame are gifts. Guilt and shame are a gift because only Jesus can remove the guilt and shame that we try to suppress in our hearts because of seared consciences, because we have defied God. We know the right thing to do, but don't do it. Or if we know the right thing to do and do do it, we do it for the wrong reasons. So the Holy Spirit is like a prosecuting attorney using the conscience to bring guilt and shame to drive us to the cross of Christ so that we might be saved. But here's something important to recognize. Creation, rocks and rainbows, and the conscience only reveal that there is a God and that this is a moral world of right and wrong, guilt and shame. That God is good and powerful. We fall short of his glory. We need salvation. 
but the cre- but creation and conscience do not tell us exactly who God is. You cannot look at a rock and say, I think God's name is Jesus and he died on the cross for my sins. And the same thing with the conscience. You can know that there's right and wrong, but a human being is unable to assuage, to remove guilt and shame until they come to Christ. So that's why we can say that the witness of the Spirit and creation and the witness of the Spirit and conscience is sufficient to condemn, but insufficient to save. That is extremely important for you to understand. They are sufficient to condemn. We saw that in Romans 1. Suppress the truth with unrighteousness. They know God's eternal power. No thanks. Condemned. Conscience. I know right and wrong, but I don't want to know God's right and wrong. Condemned. And that's where the third witness comes in. Creation, conscience, and the third witness of the Spirit working, and I'll touch on this briefly, is simply through Christians. So creation is a general revelation, but you need special revelation. You need someone to open the truth of the Bible and speak the truth of the Bible. And so the Holy Spirit works through Christians who proclaim the sinless life of Jesus, his sin-atoning death, his justification, gifting, resurrection, all by grace through faith. The witness of creation and the witness of conscience can only be calibrated by Christians. Meaning we need the Bible to make us understand, oh, that's what creation is bearing witness of. Oh, that's what my conscience was bearing witness of. So that means that we as Christians, the third way the Spirit operates is through the church. So now back to our text. Back to verse 8. The Spirit operates... In those three overlapping areas, creation, conscience, and your Christian witness to convict the world. That's, that's what Jesus says here in our text. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the Spirit uses creation, conscience, and Christians to bring that conviction. But what does conviction mean? In his commentary, D.A. Carson, he has a nice quote. He says this, Arguably, in every instance in the Bible of the word convict, it has to do with showing someone his sin as a summons to repentance. Kind of two sides to one coin. It's not just exposing your wrong or this is your sin. It is with the aim of summoning to repentance. So the Spirit's work in the world is to convict. It is to show the wrongness of us, the rightness of God, such that we abandon ourselves and fly to Jesus. And so the Spirit operates in and through creation, conscience, and Christians to show the world its sin and summon each one of us to repentance and faith in Jesus, the one and only Savior. Think about what Paul says in Acts 17 regarding God's edict over creation. God summons all people everywhere to repent. And so the Spirit's task in convicting the world is to 
plow the soil, so to speak, to bring people to that place. Old Spurgeon has summarized the effect of the Spirit's ongoing conviction of the world this way. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. That's the work of the Holy Spirit's conviction in the world. Melting some hearts and hardening others. And in our passage here, Jesus indicates that the three areas that the Spirit's life and ministry convicted the world of, sin, righteousness, and judgment, that's what Jesus did in the world. Go back through and read John, and Jesus' operation in the world was to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that people would repent and follow him. And many did, and many did not. Many did not. And the result will be salvation for some and hardening for others. So the Spirit will work in his mysterious ways with someone hiking through a forest to change their heart and drive them to revelation from the Bible to believe in Jesus. Others will just worship and serve creation rather than the Creator. What I want you to see is that the power of conviction then of an unbeliever is not in your abilities or knowledge. You are not the convictor. The Holy Spirit is. And it's his work through us, which frees us then when we share the love of Jesus and his gospel message with people who don't believe that we don't trust ourselves and our ability to argue. We have to be faithful. We have to know the gospel. We have to love uh, the person we're speaking to. But it's the Spirit working through the word we say, the Bible word we say, that the Spirit brings the conviction. So that means that we don't need to manipulate. We don't need to conjure up tricks and techniques and all these different things to try to get people to be saved because we can't get people saved. It's the work of the Spirit, which means that we can rest peacefully knowing, knowing that our job is to be faithful, the Spirit's job is to be fruitful. And what we read of here in John 16 connects with John 3. Remember John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus? And, and Jesus telling Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God unless he is first born again by the Spirit. I want you to see that when someone repents, when you share the love of Jesus with them, it's because the Spirit's conviction on them it's not a work they do for themselves. I have decided to be convicted. And I shall now remove my conviction. Thank you, Pastor Andy. Thank you. Were you convicted? <laughs> Thank you, brother. <clears throat> it's connecting the Spirit's operation in the Gospel of John. John's... 16 convict the world john 3 the spirit causes people to be born again so this means why have we gathered this morning was it was it because we were excellent and so smart at discerning the witness of creation 
Are we sitting here this morning because our conscience was so clean and pure as the white driven snow that we kind of saved ourselves and got here? Are we here this morning because, are you, do you believe in Jesus? Because really you, you get the credit for that. You should take the credit because Jesus opened the door, but you walked through. No, this means that the spirit's conviction is the grace of God in our life of why we were sitting here and why we still come every Sunday to sit here. And friend, if you don't know Jesus, I just want to tell you that from a biblical perspective, we believe in God and that he's in control. It's God's power that brought you here this morning to hear these words so that your heart could be cut, so that it could be healed by Jesus and enter into eternal life with him. Left to ourselves, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is something that we try to numb, try to escape. But when the Spirit doesn't let us off that operating table, when we believe, we're saved. But for some, it hardens the heart and some believe. So the Holy Spirit then convicts the world, so rely on him for your witness and rely on him for the person's response in your witness. And so now we can drill down into those three areas of how he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Uh, now this might seem obvious to us, uh, but listen to what Jesus says there in verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me time and again the gospel accounts reveal to us that many turn away from jesus in disbelief they heard his teaching they saw his miracles and his signs and they did not believe here is the problem with defining sin we want to define sin or we have a tendency just to drift into the big neon signs horrible sins, um, the, the murder, the theft, the um, wh whatever, we, we, we look at these big flashy things, but look at how Jesus defines the core sin outside of Christ. Do you see what it is? It's unbelief. The root of human sin is unbelief. It's in that moment that I don't believe that I'm going to worship and serve someone else or something else, or it's because I don't believe my pride rears its head. Sin, or rather unbelief, is the root human sin from which all else flows. So a rejection of God's word and a replacement with man's word, and the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of their unbelief, meaning we should believe and trust ourselves to Jesus. Think back <clears throat> to Romans 1 a few moments ago. What do people do in response to God's revelation? So go back to Romans 1, and I'm going to finish reading 21 through 31. We began at verse 18, but let's look at 21 through 31, looking at how the Holy Spirit convicts concerning sin. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man, birds, beasts, and bugs, animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Is there a more apt description of our world today? All sin and rebellion is rooted in unbelief and the rejection of Jesus. Jesus invented life, and he's one who designed how life to work. And Romans 1 is a chronicle of people rejecting everything that God says about how life works. Rather than admitting and turning from sin and turning to Jesus for salvation, they suppressed the truth and exchanged the truth for a lie. And so remember the, what old Spurgeon said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So what the Spirit did for us is the Spirit convicted us of our sin. We saw that we were wrong. We saw that this was us before Jesus saved us, before the Spirit caused us to be born again. And so we did believe because he convicted us, but others do not. The sin of unbelief is rejecting God's gospel promise and fabricating a false gospel in something else. And the world hates the church because it hates the light of Jesus in and through us. But Jesus still has many people to save out of the world, just like you and me. And so this is not enemies outside, good guys inside. It's there's brothers and sisters, there's future brothers and sisters in Macy's right now. And on campus, 
And so we love the lost because someone loved us when we were lost in Jesus. And because we were loved by someone who told us about the gospel of Jesus, we do the same. So Jesus is looking to encourage us in going like sheep among wolves to share the love of Jesus because someone did it for us and we're going to do it for them. So even though the world hates us, we love them as God loved us in Christ and go share that love of Jesus with them. Number two, of righteousness. Look at verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. When, when it says that um, he's going to convict the world, the Spirit is, picture a stool with three legs. One leg is sin, one leg is righteousness, one leg is judgment, and it holds up the stool of conviction. What's going on here when Jesus says the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness? We need to understand that there's two competing righteousnesses, one true and one false. The true righteousness of Jesus, vindicated because he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, and there's the false self-righteousness of the world. We all were self-righteous. We sought self-justification before Jesus saved us. Remember, we are moral creatures. We seek to justify ourselves. One of the realities of the Gospel of John is the man-made self-righteous system the religious leaders turned the Mosaic Covenant into. Sin is so sinful, it can take God's word and pervert it and turn it into a way of saving myself. That's what the Pharisees did. And when we talk about righteousness here, it's the competing righteousnesses. He's, the, the Spirit's going to convict of the right righteousness of Jesus and the false righteousness of the world. For example, Isaiah 64.6. Isaiah 64.6 the Bible speaks about false righteousness. The world thinks it's righteous, but God says, no, it's not. Isaiah 64, 6, we all have become like one who was unclean. Note this, all our righteous deeds are like a used menstrual pad. That is what the Hebrew means when it says polluted garments. Our English translators I guess thought that was too aggressive a statement to make clear. And so they say polluted garment. God says our righteous deeds outside of him are a polluted garment. If, <clears throat> if you came to my Wednesday lectures last fall, you heard me refer to NAU as a secular seminary. Uh, and actually all education. And what do I mean by that? I meant that the, a university, what is a university supposed to do? As a whole, a university is an attempt to understand, explain, and improve the world through various avenues of educational pursuit to then release young people into the world to understand, explain, and improve the world. Why would I call it a secular seminary? Remember earlier how I said all sciences? ultimately point to God. When you go to seminary, you learn how all of life is biblical and for God. A secular seminary means that there is a self-conscious 
denial and rejection of the creator God and his saving son, Christ the King. And so whether you are in humanities, legal studies, electrical engineering, fluid mechanics, whatever your deal is, if you're learning it outside of Christ, Christ is the inventor of those things, and they're meant to glorify him, especially when you get into the social sciences, especially when you get there. Any attempt to understand and explain and improve the world apart from God's word is the fall of the Garden of Eden all over again. It's a suppression of the truth. It's an exchange of the glory of God for a lie. It's the slow rebuilding of the Tower of Babel. It's the fostering a world like it was before Noah's flood. In the absence of believing in Jesus, the Spirit still works in different ways on the human conscience to convict of guilt and shame before God. And in unbelief, the human heart seeks to self-swindle, self-justify, and have self-righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit goes into the world to speak of Christ's righteousness and the false righteousness of the world. The human heart does not want the free gift of Christ's righteousness credited to us before God. The human heart wants to work our own self-salvation project. We want to take credit for our standing with God, which on that day of judgment, Jesus will expose as a false righteousness that was nothing but filthy rags. And lastly, number three of judgment, verse 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Just as there's two competing righteousnesses, there's two competing judgments or verdicts, one true and one false. The verdict of Christ over the world by his spirit or the false verdict of Satan and by extension, all who blindly follow him. What does this mean concerning judgment? All the world agreed it was right to, to judge Jesus as false and a sinner. All the world agreed in self-righteousness that it was a good thing to condemn, condemn Jesus and put him on a cross. And the world calls evil good and God's good evil. This is evident in the world's clamor about personhood and gender and marriage and sexuality, children and the sanctity of life, the household, masculinity, femininity, sin, and everything. The world has its own set of self-righteousnesses and self-judgments, which are false. When Satan is referred to in verse 11 as the ruler of this world, please don't misunderstand that, that he's a king and all creation stopped being God's kingdom. Instead, Satan's rule is like the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone set up in Seattle during the riots. It's an insurrection. It's false. It's not real. So when he says concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged, when Jesus died on the cross, that was the decisive military victory that defeated Satan and all his ideologies and exalted Christ. The cross of Christ was the supreme judgment of the world under Satan, not just rejecting God's son, but killing Jesus because he's the light and the darkness hates the light. In all this, the spirit is always witnessing, always convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment through creation, conscience, and Christians. Perhaps today you've lost heart in your evangelism. 
You've prayed and prayed, unanswered prayers, friends and family still not walking with the Lord. You've shared the gospel and people have rejected you, spit in your face, turned their back on you. What we take from the passage this morning is that you should take heart that the Spirit is ever working in so many ways that you can't even see. And salvation ultimately depends upon the Spirit and not you. So take heart, keep praying, keep loving, keep sharing the gospel, stay faithful, keep trusting Christ and His Spirit to work His purposes and His timetable. You stay faithful. Perhaps you're fearful and you're afraid this morning of the overwhelming onslaught of a world against Christ and therefore against you. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Satan is defeated. His spirit is in complete control of the chaos. The end is certain. So is our salvation. The gospel prevails. Jesus wins. And finally, perhaps this morning you're cut to the heart as you see yourself reflected in the mirror of scripture. You hear it said, you look into the book, and what's happened is you recognize that you have rejected Christ. You don't believe. You trust yourself. You look to justify yourself rather than getting Jesus' justification of you and his righteousness given to you. You've judged Jesus as false, but now your heart sees. Friend, that's Jesus bringing you to himself by his spirit. Believe and be saved. Turn from your sin. Renounce it. Trust Jesus. Give yourself to him. Know that his blood washes away all our sins, past, present, and future. And only his righteousness can save you, and it's a free gift he gives to you now. Believe in him. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit's work. We thank you that you've not left us alone, but Jesus, you've sent another helper to be with us and to work in this world. So accomplish your purposes, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.